Let us go now in prayer. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You, O Lord, for that today as we gather, You accept us as Your children, and in that, we have an opportunity of interceding, of calling upon You in help and in need, as the Son at the right hand does perpetually for us. You've given us the same tools to come before You now in like manner. And so we, O Lord, pray for our own world. We think, O Lord, of our civil government, and today we think of those who are local leaders within it. We pray for our mayors, our city councils, our county boards. We pray, O Lord, that by their work, perhaps felt most locally, that our people would see prosperity and peace. We pray, O Lord, that for those who we've elected into office would not merely represent us well, but also, O Lord, protect by the very nature the proclamation of the Word. We pray that the churches in our area would see prosperity because of the protecting provision that we have often been afforded by our own government. We pray, O Lord, that when our local leaders fail, O Lord, that you would impress upon them the acts of repentance, cutting away the sin within their own lives. We pray, O Lord, thus for their own salvation, that we might be a people that not only experience the fruits of preservation, prosperity, and peace, but, O Lord, that our leaders would see you for who you are, O God, the true and living God over all of the creation. We pray, O Lord, for the mission and work of the church. We think of the Wadhams family as they, O Lord, seek to Bring the gospel to the Indian people in Washington. We pray, O Lord, for your grace and truth to be impressed upon them. We pray, O Lord, that as they continue in this ministry, that you'd be gracious to them. That they would see the Indian people there in Washington confess their sins and embrace the Savior of the world, as we just read a few moments ago. When they are downcast and discouraged, O Lord, we pray that you would uplift them and remind them of your sustaining provision. And, O Lord, we pray that as they seek to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you'd prepare the people there by softening their hearts and coming to bear with their sins as they come in repentance to Christ. We pray also, O Lord, for those who are lost. We think of those who are lost in the Middle East, a place that was once vibrant for the faith as we read throughout the Scriptures often, now in some ways a religious desolate wasteland where the church is but a fragment concealed within their societies. We pray, O Lord, for revival in the Middle East. We pray for the church to prosper and for the church that is constantly embattled by persecution. We pray, O Lord, that you give them the courage and the peace to continue on. We pray, O Lord, that by their witness, many others would bear witness to the light who is the light of men in Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you'd spare not the Middle East of your redeeming grace. And that you would raise up missionaries, perhaps even among us, to participate in that very difficult work. We pray also, O Lord, in like manner, that we would be a people that grow. And as we grow in grace and truth, we would see that growth perhaps in our music ministry. 
that we, O Lord, would be a people that sing unto Christ, that we would gather in joy and let our hearts be heard by the voices that band together in doxological praise. We thank you, O Lord, for Mitchell and his work in leading part of this singing. But we also thank you, O Lord, for the many others in our choir, those who play piano, who help us, O Lord, to sing great praises to your name. We pray, O Lord, though, that you would be with us. Some are not here this morning because they are sick. We think of some in my own family in that regard. O Lord, give us rest. Remind us in the midst of our earthly toils and sicknesses that we are in regular need of Jesus Christ. We do also, O Lord, pray for the Bogard family. As they transition to a new home, we, O Lord, pray that you'd be gracious to them as well. That as they get settled, that our congregation can come alongside them and around them, putting them under our own pinions as we seek to care for them. But be with them in the long days ahead of unpacking and getting things in order. And be with Jenna, O Lord, as she cares for her children well. We pray all of these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, to the Gospel of Luke. We are in chapter 8, and what Jesus has been doing throughout chapter 8 is He has been establishing His restorative ministry over all the earth. We saw this as Jesus went to the sea and calmed the sea itself, a place that was known for utter darkness, wickedness, perhaps the dominion of the demonic itself. Him calming that sea shows His great authority over the creation and that nothing is outside of His grasp and He will restore all things. But that doesn't extend merely to the creation. After all, we saw that he was on his way to free a demoniac of his demons and sins. The Lord comes to redeem all things. And so, as we finish up chapter 8, we see one more case study for that redemption, that restoration that Jesus promises to bring his people. Today, we see that both with Jairus' daughter but as well as a woman who has had some discharge for some time. We have seen a lot of examples so far of Jesus healing and resurrecting. And today we see a story within a story where both happen in one event. In light of that, stand now as we hear from Luke chapter 8, picking up in verse 40. Luke 8, verse 40, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. And when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. 
She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive the power that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when they came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one of what had happened. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. We see some desperate times in our passage today, and sometimes desperate times, as you've often heard, lead to desperate measures, whether that be touching the mere tassels of Jesus' cloak or seeking out it to him and bending knees to him. Desperate times sometimes call for desperate measures. What seems perhaps extreme under normal circumstances might be appropriate when we are experiencing adversity. I can think of no other example than during World War II, you probably know the, the evacuation of Dunkirk. It was a desperate time in the life of England. Operation Dynamo, as it was called, was an operation where the government of England mobilized the small ships of England in order to try to evacuate as many soldiers from France as they could. I can think of no better movies if you want recommendations from your pastor than perhaps Dunkirk or maybe The Darkest Hour to perhaps solidify the gravitas of those moments. But I recall that as they were planning Operation Dynamo to evacuate as many as they could, they only anticipated that at best they could perhaps get maybe thirty to 45,000 soldiers out of France. Desperate times and desperate measures led up towards to almost 350,000 soldiers returning home to fight another day. Sometimes we experience desperate times, and though the circumstances may lead to odd and perhaps crazy actions, that's perhaps what we see here in the gospel today. 
We have a passage that has a story within a story. Two desperate people that are preparing to see Jesus because they, in fact, themselves are desperate. Their lives have been turned upside down. Perhaps Jairus, as he thinks of losing his own daughter, or perhaps the second, the marginalized woman who had discharged for 12 years. They were both in desperate need of help. And I'm sure they both had sought the counsel of others to receive that help but had had no success. Both are desperate, and both seek the Savior. And so perhaps you have been desperate some time in your life. Perhaps you feel desperate this morning. We've all experienced it. You feel stuck in the muck and mire without a solution, not knowing what to do next. I love to control my life and know where it starts and where it ends and how I got there. Sometimes we are unable to do that. And in those times, we can feel desperation. When trials run upon us, we can become hopeless, melancholy, and depression. And sometimes we even turn from God. How often has it been in the deepest melancholy and depression that you've experienced instead of coming to church to worship You roll over and just sleep more. What I want you to see today, though, is that in these desperate times, we are called to trust Jesus. It's quite simple. Trust Jesus in the desperate times. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is that, yes, faith has its trials. Perhaps you have been reared in a broad evangelical world that says, when you become Christian, everything will be fixed. Perhaps a little too much prosperity in your gospel. But what we know as a true fact of faith is that faith has its trials. And we see the trials before us here. Look down at verse 40 with me. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. And they were all waiting for him. And there was a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of a synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him, come to my house. You could see the trials. If everyone had a perfect life, no one would be waiting for Jesus as he returned. But they all wanted help. They all had needs. They all had trials. They needed some fixing. And there's no greater example of this than Jairus himself, a ruler who was over the synagogue. A ruler of the synagogue was perhaps of a different religious establishment that you commonly associate in the Bible. You think of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, perhaps the Essenes, if you're a little studied up. But the ruler of the synagogue was a local ruler. He was a businessman, likely, who was in charge of overseeing the local synagogue. He was like a ruling elder, perhaps like Mitchell, who was up here earlier this morning. A ruler, a lay leader, who had influence who had authority, who had connections. And yet we see this ruler of the synagogue come before Jesus. And when he comes before Jesus, he falls to his feet and implores him to come with him. He doesn't seem to have the same preconceived notions that the Pharisees have had thus far in the Gospel of Luke. He's a desperate man, and though it may be frowned upon by some of his superiors, he comes to Jesus. Why does he come to Jesus? Verse 42 tells us quite plainly. He had a daughter, an only daughter, who was 12 years old, and she was dying. 
The death of a child is always a sad and difficult experience for all of us. No one expects to bury their own children. And it is even heightened in this passage that this is his only daughter. At the age of 12, she was beginning to transition from little girl to being a woman. And in that transition, perhaps Jairus was beginning to think of who she would become. Who would she marry? Perhaps he's already thinking of grandchildren. I know it might be odd thinking of your own 12-year-old and their children, but it's not odd here, not odd in this culture. He's thinking of her future. And as she lay there sick and dying, Perhaps something's being robbed of him. Those dreams, as he would think of them, being unfulfilled. He's about to lose his only daughter. It's a sad reality. And it leads to a moment of desperation. He doesn't come before Jesus as the ruler of the synagogue. He doesn't come before Jesus as a business leader. He comes before Jesus as a humble, desperate father. His most basic title in all of society. He's just a father, and he is in need of Jesus's help. And so, in this first very short point, the others will be longer, I assure you, faith has its trials. And I want you to know that trials can shake, yes, our foundation of faith, but faith has its trials. Some trials lead us to desperation. We have felt those pressures in life, but we all experience trials. Some of them caused by our own sin, no doubt. (laughs) And some of them not caused by our sin at all. We, after all, live in a sinful world. We all get sick, as I am perhaps feeling somewhat under the weather this morning. There are trials in the Christian faith. Being a Christian doesn't free you from them. And that's what you need to know. So in the second place... As we think of Jesus, trusting in Jesus in desperate times, yes, faith has its trials, but we also see, perhaps in the massive body of this text, that faith overcomes trial. So in the midst of desperate times and trials, faith overcomes trial. We see this both in the life of Jairus at the end of the passage, don't want to spoil it too much, but also in the life of the woman, the woman who intercedes in the midst of a story to distract us from the story. That is a woman with discharge. Look down at verse 43. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. We get the second desperate character, and we see the overcoming nature in a moment. But who is this woman? I want to put in perspective her life for you, perhaps. This was a social nightmare to have what she had. It perhaps wasn't debilitating in the physical sense, but in the ceremonial, religious sense, it was a plague. She perhaps, in her condition, led to impoverishment. One, because she had spent all her living on physicians and had received no healing. But two, socially, relationally, she was isolated. If she sat on any of your chairs this morning, you would not be able to sit in that chair for seven days. If she laid in any of your beds, that bed would be as good as dead for seven whole days as it becomes ceremonially pure. Think of what that does for relationships. (laughs) You don't want to invite her over. Lysol is not going to fix this situation. That chair might as well be put in a closet for seven days because it it is unusable. 
is an isolating experience that this woman experienced for 12 whole years. It's a long time to be isolated. It's a long time to be unclean. She was not invited to parties. No one would visit her. Her doctors would meet with her and give her some herbal treatment. It just seemed not to work. Actually, there were. There's well documented how you dealt with this issue. It mostly, for some reason, dealt with wine. <laughs> you would mix wine with gum and boil it, and then the, the person who was sick would drink it. When that didn't work, they would do that again, except they would add onions, and then they would have a chant. There's almost a religious nature of medicine back in this day. And they would say, arise from thy flux. And when that didn't work, they would do all of that again, but they would come up and sneak up from behind you and try to frighten you by saying that phrase again. Imagine the weird oddities of such sickness and healing. This woman had been frightened for 12 years as people randomly walked by her saying, arise from thy flux. Odd, perhaps. Our alternative medicines have come a long way. We no longer, perhaps, chant and scare people to feeling well again. But this woman was desperate. And in her desperation, she sought out Jesus. And think of the crowd. In her own mind's eye, she thought, this crowd is large. As we look at the density of the crowd, it says that, that the, the, she is being that Jesus himself is being pressed in upon. That's a large crowd. I'm sure in her mind she thought, all I have to do is go join the crowd and I can just touch Jesus and go away in and out, incognito. No one will ever know, but I'll be healed. She had hope against hope like Abraham had hope against hope. All I have to do is get in and get out. No one will notice. No one will notice. And that's exactly what she does. Look in verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, the tassel on his tunic. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus, unthinkable perhaps, said, Who is it that had touched me? Perhaps we always give Peter a hard time for his responses, but naturally, humanly, you would think the same. Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. What do you mean, who has touched you? Everyone is touching you. The word pressed here is actually too kind of a way to translate it in the ESV. It's actually translated crushed. The crowds are crushing you, Jesus. There are so many people here that you are being crushed. It's like going to a concert and being on the main floor of that concert. If you want to get out quickly, good luck. Thousands of people surround you, and you are being crushed. In my own music days, they would often try to open up mosh pits and things of that nature at these concerts. And you want to know about being crushed. You're trying to open a 25-foot circle in the midst of a dense crowd, and you have all of these guys pushing back the crowd. You experience crushing. And you won't know who's touching you. If you're a claustrophobic person, do not go on the main floor of any concert because you will be crushed. That's the kind of crushing that Jesus is experiencing. He's trying to make his way through the crowd, and the crowd is just pressing in upon him. Everyone is touching him. Everyone wants to touch him. It's not just merely this woman. Everyone wants their miracle. They all are thinking the same thing as this woman in some regard. If I just can touch him, 
That's all I'll need. I'm surprised, and perhaps if we can get a little more commentary on Jairus, I'm sure he has Jesus by hand and tunic, like, come on, Jesus, let's get through. I have a more urgent need than all these people. But he is being crushed around him. But Jesus notes that someone had touched him, and they actually had received healing. Don't think of this woman stealing miracles. <laughs> Perhaps that's the way you could read it in some regard, that without Jesus' consent, we live in a consent culture, she stole from him. But it is her faith that makes her well, as Jesus notes. But before we get there, look at verse 46. And Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive power has gone from me. And when the woman's, woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Don't think of this passage as Jesus having superpower batteries and he had lost, he's used some of his juice on this woman. That's not what's being communicated here. He just knows that there is a transfer of his healing power. He is aware that when he heals someone, he knows he is healing someone. And that is what's going on here. Sometimes my son, while he's picking up his uh, toys, he'll say, Daddy, my batteries are low. Can you change them? And I, going along with the just end, I pretend to rip open a packet of batteries and I throw them at him and somehow he's recharged. That's not what Jesus is dealing with here. He has unlimited power. He's more like if he wanted to keep the battery illustration, he is plugged into the wall and has constant unlimited power in that, and he knows when he is doing his work. So much so that the woman realizes she is not as incognito as she thought she was. Everyone has touched Jesus, but she seems to be the only one that's healed by him. And she comes trembling, falling down before him, declaring in the presence of the people on why. Don't view this trembling and this falling down as fear that she is about to be judged by Jesus. You might be thinking that, oh, maybe she did steal a miracle. This fear and trembling is connected to what had just happened to her. She is a woman that has been isolated for 12 years, and now she's experienced healing, and the one who has healed her has confronted her and called her to come forward. There was trembling because of the power of what Christ had done for her. She was not afraid of his judgment. She was in awe of his work. Perhaps you've seen someone who had learned to see because of a surgery or learned to hear for the first time, and that first experience to hearing is, is almost filled with trembling and awe, often with tears. Why? Because it's almost unthinkable. I've never heard a sound in my life, and now I can understand you. That is the type of experience this woman's having. I am healed, truly healed, no more unclean. I made right. So she comes trembling and tells of her story on how she is healed. Notice how Jesus responds to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. A few passages ago, perhaps a month ago or so, we saw that when Jesus' family was trying to find him and get through their own crowd to get to Jesus, Jesus says, Who is my father and my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? They are those who have faith in me. 
This is a familial response. It's probably overlooked as you read verse 48 often. But Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well because she does truly believe in him. And for her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is an opportunity and an ability of a believer to overcome life's trials. Physically, perhaps, but spiritually, most important. We all have needs in our own lives and problems perhaps that we can't solve, things that are tabled. We all struggle with besetting sins, broken relationships, incurable disabilities, chronic diseases, areas of personal weakness that leave us often feeling battered, discouraged, defeated. And what the Christian needs to know is that Jesus overcomes all of these things. He overcomes all of these things, and more than that, he calls us son, brother, sister, daughter. He makes us one of his own family. So as desperate as you might be in this time, through the trials of this blustery winter that you might experience, the Savior overcomes all these things, and he says, go in peace. Brother and sister, go in peace. But the last thing I want you to see when trusting in Jesus in desperate times is that faith leads to restoration. Faith leads to restoration. Yes, faith overcomes trials, but it also leads to restoration. And we see this throughout the last section. I mean, we see it throughout much of the passage, but I want to focus on it in the last section. Perhaps at this point you forgot about old Jairus and his daughter. We have been distracted by this side story. What is going on as a concerned father tries to hustle Jesus along? He has to turn around and figure out who he has healed. Come on, Jesus, I have a more urgent matter than someone touching you. That's probably what I would say to Jesus at the time, and you as well. My daughter is dying. We need you. We need you now. We needed you yesterday, but you were in some other place at a necropolis healing a demoniac. We need you now. We needed you yesterday. And we see that worst fear come to life as an informant comes to Jairus and says, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. There's a presumption made by this informant and probably the crowd around him that what is done is done. The worst news has come. The one who Jesus was supposed to heal is dead. Instead, he healed someone else in the crowd instead of my own daughter, and she is dead. And the informant, with a great presumption, says, do not bother Jesus anymore. There's no reason to. It's a misconception. Perhaps in Jairus' own sinful mind, in our own minds, we'd say, Jesus, you were too slow. You weren't on time. You were too late. My daughter is dead. Though you said you had good intentions, you were unable to fulfill them. That's what the crowd thought Jesus would say. So just leave him alone. Death seemed perhaps as an insurmountable problem to this crowd. A problem that was too big for any healer. She's dead. Her body is cold. Cold to the touch. But notice how Jesus responds. As everyone is fretting around him, Jesus doesn't have that same sort of Uh, anxiety. In verse 50, but Jesus on hearing this answered them, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. Jesus was not thrown off guard. Though, yes, he was distracted by healing of another, he is not thrown off guard. 
He will bring to pass what he has promised Jairus he would bring to pass, and that is that his daughter would be restored. And all he is saying to Jairus is, do not fear, only believe, and she'll be well. It's a simple gospel message. Just believe, and it will be okay. Perhaps the crowd in disbelief said, yeah, right. You can't turn back the clock on this one. But he's not thrown off. Think of how, as they went over there, the sign of mourning. The moment someone dies, you begin the process of burial. And that is what they were doing. The professional mourners were already out in droves by the time they got back. And they were all weeping, screaming, and crying because Jairus' daughter was indeed dead. And as they were doing that, Jesus tells the crowd and those who are there, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. It's an interesting thing that Jesus is saying here. She is certainly dead. We we know that. Um, There's no doubt about that. Body cold, she is dead. Jesus isn't making a statement as a physician. He did not go and check her pulse and say, oh, you guys, she's just sleeping. You know, that was a scare. She's not actually dead. No, this is... She is truly dead. But Jesus is trying to turn the tables on how we think of death. He's trying to show us that death is actually temporary. To him, as the almighty, powerful God-man, death is like sleeping. Perhaps unfathomable to us. But Jesus is looking forward that there is indeed resurrection. And that all who fall asleep, all who die, will experience that same idea of resurrection. One old commentator put it this way, in an entire word of sleeping, the girl's death was not permanent. The girl was dead to her family and friends. But as far as Jesus was concerned, she was only asleep. This gets to our minds to thinking greater than perhaps our own physical state begin to think of resurrection and the spiritual nature bound within it. But the natural man responds, as verse 53 says, and they laughed at him because they knew. But what did Jesus do but taking her hand? He called, saying, child, arise. Notice who's in the room when Jesus does this. It is not a large crowd of mourners. It's his disciples the parents and the family. It's a small group. Even they are in disbelief. Even they laugh at the idea. Even they know the reality. And Jesus takes her by the hand and arises and her spirit returns to her. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. Why? Because she was alive. She is no mere ghost or phantom. She is truly alive and she needs to eat to live. She's been given new life. Her parents were amazed, but they charged her to tell no one. We perhaps live in a world that is abstracted from death itself. We don't like to think about death. I've shared that perhaps from this pulpit a few times. And just a few hundred years ago, death was so ordinary that perhaps we have some semblance of this when our are the women of our congregation or in the world who miscarry. It's Death is probably most poignant in those circumstances. It leads to fear. 
Back a couple hundred years ago, though, children died regularly. Wives died normally during rearing children and giving birth to them. John Owen actually had, not my, my kid, not my kid, John Owen, the Puritan, had 11 children and only one reached adulthood. Uh, Charles Wesley had eight children and five of them died in infancy or early childhood. Benjamin Morgan Palmer, the great Southern Presbyterian, whose story I withheld a few months ago because of how gut-wrenchingly sad it was to read some of his journal articles, had his own children die regularly. And it wasn't because of their negligence. It was the world that they lived in. They knew death. Perhaps you remember that story of death that I shared from Dabney a few months ago. That was the light version. And I remember telling that story, and you could hear a pin drop in this congregation because you thought, wow, that was a little much. Well, Benjamin Morgan Palmer's story was even sadder. <laughs> we are sometimes removed from death. But we need to remember that in the midst of death, there is restoration. Perhaps you're thinking of the physical restoration that we see here in this passage, but there is an even greater restoration, and that is spiritual resurrection that we are offered to in the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say, well, I don't see many resurrections here today, and you'd be mistaken. You'd be mistaken because what Jesus is pointing to is beyond the physical. He is pointing beyond the physical and to the spiritual. Why are they merely asleep? It is because the Lord himself will resurrect everyone in that room on that day. They are spiritually restored. Sometimes we heighten the physical nature of our healing because it seems like a matter of life and death. But what is even greater than physical healing, what is even greater for the, this woman that was healed, for Jairus' daughter who rose again, is that spiritual restoration was preeminent and important. Nothing was greater than it. And we all experience that here today. And that's why we should trust in Jesus with our trials and desperation. It is because he offers us resurrection. By your willingness to sit here to worship the true and living God, you show evidence of that resurrected life here today. Faith leads to restoration. Perhaps not physical today, but truly spiritual. For the Christian then, you cannot escape the trials of this life. You cannot escape them. You will experience them. You might have desperate times in your family, times that you can't control, times where you lose grasp, you go tunnel-visioned because you just don't know what to do. We've all been there. We might have hardships. We might have hardships today, yesterday, tomorrow. But what we need to know is that in those hard times where we go tunnel-visioned, there is a Savior who all we need is to touch His proverbial tassels, and he will make all things right. Perhaps not all of our problems will be solved, but he will spiritually nurture and care for us. I'm reminded of another story, perhaps out of World War II again, we get themes here, of where the Nazis were bombing London there's a, there's a good story of Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching during one of these uh, bombings. I'll save that, stow that for another day. But there's a good story of a father who is holding out his son by the hand. He ran to a building as it was struck by a bomb. And in the front yard, there was a hole. And the father jumped into the hole but lost the grip of his own son. 
And his son out there in the hazy battlefield was tasked to try to find his father. Not knowing he fell in a hole. Not knowing he was where he needed to be to be safe. And then his father's voice calls out to him, Come, come here to me. And the boy, terrified and hearing, says, I can't see you. I can't see you. I can't find you. The father, looking up against the red-tinted sky with burning buildings, says, but I can see you. Come to me. For the Christian, that is what the Lord calls to you this morning. Come. You may not see your way well. You may not know how you get out of this predicament, this trial, this tribulation. But the Lord can see you. And he calls you to come. That's the kind of faith that Jesus calls for us here today. That is the trust that he calls us to have in him. But for the non-Christian, you cannot escape life's trials either. You indeed have desperate times, and you perhaps turn to all sorts of remedies for them, but the one source of warm embrace that you need is the Lordship of Christ this morning. Today, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I impress upon you to turn from your sin and to call upon him. Be like this woman who had faith, Be like Jairus, who continued and pressed on, didn't listen to his informants. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but call upon him. For he is the one that offers you gain and comfort. What have you to lose? You have much to gain. Jesus, as we close, is the Savior who you can both trust in desperation and even in death. Even in the midst of him being severe, (laughs) he brings comfort. Even when he delays, we see that it ultimately leads to joy. Turn to him and run towards him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that you would send your Son to us, that by your grace and mercy that we would have life in him. Allow us to turn from our sin, to run after the Savior who has saved us so. Be with us on this day as we rest in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.